You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa, nature's catalyst for optimizing fat metabolism. Hi, welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, and I'm your host, Peter Defty, along with my co-host today, Dr. Jonathan Edwards, and uh, today we have um, the distinguished Alessandro Ferretti on board. Yes, yes, good man, as you say, you are distinguished in our, our view. And, and this is truly like another one of those international podcasts that we do. Um, Jonathan, you're calling us from France in the south of France, is it? I'm in Where the south. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Yes. I'm in the south of France. Uh, Alessandro's in, uh, in Great Britain there. And yeah, it's very truly international. Yep, this is the, the wonderful world of globalization where, you know, the Internet is making the world a much smaller place. So um, this is a we've we've known Alessandro via the Internet and Facebook for several months now and uh, actually got together for a lot of great conversation at Low Carb USA. Thanks, uh, Doug, um, for hosting that. But um, one of the interesting things that came out of our conversations uh, with Dr. Edwards and Alessandro are a lot of very similar findings and commonalities that we, we have, we've all come to independently with the OFM program, um, you know, and we wanted to talk about that. And plus, uh, Alessandro, uh, later in the podcast, we're going to be getting into uh, your work with, with heart rate and heart rate variability specifically. But uh, let's, uh, let's get you going because this, this podcast is really about you, so... Take it away, Alessandro. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what your background is, how you came to do what you're doing, what you're doing. And, uh, you know, as we have questions and comments, uh, we'll, we'll interject, but hopefully we won't all step on each other. Sure, sure. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, always, uh, it's always a great opportunity for me to share the, the, uh, my, my little work. Um, I, I am a nutritionist. Uh, and uh, train as a classical nutritionist in a scientifically uh, based college. And then kind of the reality was a bit different out there. So I started to uh, research more and more and uh, starting to obviously have slightly different findings from the one that we were taught at school. And that prompted me to research further. So I'm not sure now if I call myself as a nutritionist or a researcher, but uh, that's pretty much <laughs> how I would sum it up uh, in general. And my well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right here because I I look at you as one of those people who's out there actually innovating and in, in moving nutrition forward in a very positive way. So uh, I'm gonna li- I'm going to crown you as an innovator in nutrition. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Really, really appreciate that. But the, um, yeah, the, the, the area of interest that started from personal reasons and then expanded to public uh, are mainly metabolism uh, and heart rate variability. These were my, my two main ones, but they, also they would encompass some nutrigenomics applications and, you know, everything that extends beyond that. Uh, and the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I ended up on a, in my view at the time, on a very healthy lifestyle and nutrition. So 
or organic food and you know kind of carbohydrates were healthy hardly any sugar in the diet training three four five times a week um, I ended up virtually pre-diabetic so my glucose was always uh, fasting uh, in the 5.6, 5.7 millimolar, which equates to, you know, the, the 105, 115. And I thought that this is not looking good, given that familial history shows that I had, you know, a predisposition for Alzheimer's, dementia, type 2 diabetes. And I thought, well, only 42 and I'm already at that stage. Uh, it's not looking good. So that's the reason why I came across the more low-carbohydrate, high-fat approach, when is useful, uh, who is suitable for, who's not suitable for, and, and, and then my interest, my further interest in heart rate variability. So this is how I end up doing what I'm doing. <laughs> now, did you, you, you originally were not um, a science nutritionist-based thing. You're, you're from Italy, and you used to work in a completely different field. Is that correct? That's correct. I, I used to be a motorbike racing engineer. So the, the, the kind of curiosity on how things work, that, 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 that's still there. <laughs> I, just, I just swap media. <laughs> so you were a racing engineer? Yeah, motorbike racing engineer. Oh, really? For whom? This is, this is getting even better because both Jonathan and I are, have keen motorbike backgrounds. Well, we, we, we started uh, our own team. Uh, called, well, translated from Italian would be Out of Revs uh, for Rigiri. And um, then I, 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 basically, I did not have at the time what actually would take to win. So I decided, well, the closest thing to that is actually focusing on actually repairing them, making them go faster and develop them. And so we got. So wait, what kind of bikes? What kind of bikes were you racing? Um, we started at the time. We still had two strokes, <laughs> so it was a little bit of time ago. <laughs> so we did the one two five GP with a Honda. We did the two fifty with a Suzuki at the time, and then we enter with the original five eight five one Ducati. Um, and at the time was the superbike. Uh, oh, okay. So this is all road so racing. You were doing you were doing uh, GP road stuff. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Oh, wow. Only, only on track. <laughs> oh wow. Well, we, yeah. Well, I, I in in a in a past life I had a Norton Commando and a I had I had a Ducati 900 SS, a 78, which was the year Mike Halewood won the Isle of Man on an NCR Duck. So that predates the 851. Wow. <laughs> Small yeah. world, very small world. I think yeah, and Jonathan, be... of course, has a huge background in motorcycling. Yeah, uh, I can't. Yeah, I'm not in the road racing, the motocross uh, industry. Yeah, I raced. You know, I was going professional up to age 19, sponsored by Yamaha and the whole bit. And um, long story short, I busted myself up well enough that you know, going to medical school was a better decision. <laughs> well, and, and he was also the team doctor for the Red Bull USA. Yeah, the Dakar uh, Rally. I've been the, yeah, the Dakar yeah. Rally team, uh, USA Red Bull KTM for five years. I did that. I did that race, all, and when it was in Africa. Wow! So I, I I knew somebody at um, Mioni, uh, Fabrizio Mioni. You may oh, have heard Fabrizio of him. Fabrizio Mioni. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had my uh, I massaged him that you know and then he died the next day it was uh it was quite a shock for us yeah 
Wow, wow. This small, very small world, yeah. uh, Alessandro, because I never knew we, we all had that. I knew Jonathan and I had this all in common, but I, I never knew you also had that in common because I, I actually went to Europe when I was 20 years old or something to watch people like Kenny Roberts and Randy Mamola and yeah, and all those guys uh, ride the GP circuit there in the match races in Italy and at um, Imola. In yeah. Italy and yeah. yeah, yeah, wow. So this is this is a great background. So let's let's just kind of move the conversation along. So we all have these competition backgrounds, uh, some somewhat testosterone filled, but uh, let's move it on down. That we we've we we kind of uh, had some things in life that got us more into how we could help people become healthier and perform better at the same time. So your background took you from there and, and uh, to England and all this. So continue on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this, this is in a nutshell how I got to uh, starting to, 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 to study uh, the potential applications in not only in myself, but then extending it to other people. And then uh, because of, I think, my passion for sport, then I came across a few athletes and then they asked me to 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 do some work with them um and then through the lecturing meeting guys like you then you know it took <laughs> it took <laughs> um a lot more uh kind of uh direction towards the sports uh performance um and one of the things that uh, especially recently i'm mining a lot of data uh, where I'm taking variables like glucose and ketones, if applicable, uh, both breath and blood, ongoing glucose measuring, heart rate variability, and I'm starting now to look at cortisol, cortisone, endogenous that is, uh, and all sorts of other variables to, 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 to try to identify patterns and critical points in which we can then advise people better. That's my utter interest. Um, I'm never afraid to kill my ducklings, as we say here in the UK. I'm not sure if it's international, but meaning I'm not attached to a specific idea. Uh, I always try to evaluate what is the best possible solution uh, given a specific scenario and also given a specific metabolic predisposition or genetic predisposition. So uh, this is where uh, I'm currently at. Yeah, um, I'll do my best. I think I have the Italian disease on the two minute, then it can easily become 20. But <laughs> um, it, uh, heart well, rate. Well, we, we can go, go down, down that rabbit, rabbit hole, but, but let's start with the <laughs> simplistic sure, version. Sure. Um, so, a heart rate variability is a, a, a measurement that looks at the variations between the heartbeats. So, if we assume that the beat uh, someone has to get around figure 60 beats per minute, most of us assume that the heart will beat at every second, at the cadence of every second. In actual fact, it's not quite so. So the variation the, 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 between heartbeats can actually be quite substantial. So, for example, uh, the first beat is bang on on a second, the second one is 0.9, the other one is 1.1 of a second. And 
as per the 30s, we started to, well, doctors and medical staff started to read researchers, started to realize that there were some association with certain diseases. And the, the first field, as far as I am aware, it was actually cardiovascular. So the people that were affected badly, uh, as far as cardiovascular system is concerned, had a very, very low variation between the heartbeat, meaning it was actually very, very like metronomic regular. Whereas yeah. eventually they started to realize also the association in, for example, depression, in, in, in other uh, conditions, and eventually ended up in sport, um, looking at a well-rested uh, system uh, would have an increase, generally speaking, heart rate variability, um, whereas someone that will be inflamed or where the sympathetic activation is predominant, then it will be a much regular heartbeat. So we can take this in a nutshell as a parameter for sympathetic uh, activation and inflammatory response. Yeah, if I may interject it, I know some of the origins of heart rate variability has its roots made in uh, the chaos theory. And, and I know they were showing uh, through equations using uh, mathematical chaos theory um, that yeah, people who had less heart rate variability just had higher, simply higher mortality. Correct. That's correct. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's exactly the very first original. I mean, now we can get heart rate variability from a smartphone camera for a snapshot type of reading. And if we compare this to the type of ECG machines that we had, a, you know, in the 30s and 1930s and 1950s, then you can easily realize that the application were really limited, whereas nowadays everyone virtually has access to some form of heart rate variability device or type of reading. So, yeah, but originally was exactly, exactly that. Yeah, there's some apps now on the market, right, that can, you can just download to your smartphone if you have the apparatus. You're, you're, you can instantly start tracking your heart rate variability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 I classify heart rate. Okay, the heart rate variability has a time domain and a frequency domain. So, they, generally speaking, there is one parameter called RMSSD, which is the root mean squared of the standard deviation of the beat, which most of the um, kind of applications and algorithm seems to be based on that. We also have other applications in relation to the frequency. So we have ultra low frequency, low frequency, high frequency, and so on. Uh, and depending upon what the person is looking or trying to quantify or assess, then the choice of the variables is also very important. Because uh, for certain things, for example, I, yeah, RMSSD, it's, it's, yeah, it's still a good parameter, but for other things, then maybe just a simple app that is 99 cents or, or, or pennies, it, it could be more than sufficient without having to go and mess around with strap or portable ECG sensors. So there is a great choice. 
depending upon also the type of measurement. Is it an ongoing measurement? Then only certain devices will be applicable. Or is it a snapshot first thing in the morning every morning to try to give us an understanding of where our body is at? And also what are the limitations between these two systems? Yeah, now, uh, just for the, for the audience, with, for reference, um, one of the things, like whatever devices you're using, whether it's heart rate variability, whether it's a simple app or a more sophisticated thing, you want to use that one thing for, for collecting your data because, like, for example, um, percentages of body mass with fat, there's all these different things. So you don't want to hop around between devices if you're collecting data because these are really kind of sort of references because a DEXA is going to read very much differently than a caliper or a tank or a chamber. Um, and so is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And if I may, that this is a really, really good comment and so many people get confused by it. Um, that is absolutely spot on and also um in the way how the measurement is taken is exceptionally important so if someone takes a snapshot type of reading to understand um where they're at we generally suggest to take it first thing in the morning it doesn't terribly matter uh you know the position and i mean there are variations in the position so for athlete for example a standing position may be more advisable than a supine but there are all sorts of different things to to look at however the 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 thing that i keep stressing on is making sure that the as many variable are controlled so if someone wakes up and they stand up they have a glass of water and then pop to the loo and then come back always maintain that routine not that one day they stand up the other day they don't the other day is uh, an hour after they woke up, another day is just after seeing the emails. And so just really try to make sure that the measurement is taken without taking any environmental changes on a daily daily basis. So most of the time, this is quite easy uh, because first, my, my procedure is exactly the one I mentioned. So I wake up, have a glass of water, pop to the loo, back, and take the reading and that is you know between 60 and 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 100 and 160 seconds so it's actually very very effective way and also you know the, the investment in time is exceptionally limited is is two minutes uh, so that 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 adds a little bit more to the specificity of the application I have tested across a couple of people taking the, the readings at different times of the day. So one day is in the morning, one day is... But it is, is, there is so much noise within that data that, that I wasn't able to make any reference based on, on, on such a high variability of the measurements, how the measurement was actually taken. Okay, so that we've got that context consistency with equipment patterns of doing things for, so we can get so the, the the listener if they're deciding to look at their heart rate availability 
can get it. But also, let's dumb it down for me, not not the audience. Let's dumb it down for me. And and this is for both you, Alessandro, and for Dr. Edwards, because as an anesthesiologist and somebody who has a very deep understanding of cardiology, um, let's just let me dumb it down to see if I'm sort of understanding what both of you are saying. You know, when you have a very narrow window of heart rate variability, that's probably indicating stress and not a good thing. Um, whereas a nice high variability is probably a good thing. So I want you guys to both take it like you, Alessandro, and what you're seeing with your work, and then uh, Dr. Edwards to provide context in terms of a cardiology uh, aspect. Sure. Um, I Okay, so the... A very low variability is normally associated, depending upon, once again, what, what parameter someone is actually looking into. Um, generally speaking, a low variability is associated with an inflamed, stressed, sympathetically activated or sympathetically dominant. Um, and if we want to be really petty, is the actually lack of parasympathetic activation um, with people that uh, can potentially either uh, we look into uh, chronic inflammation or acute inflammation or, for example, cardiovascular diseases. Uh, if his application in, in a normal day or working day, that could be a stress response from the previous day. I've done a lot of research through traveling. For example, when I was lecturing in a different country or I was lecturing in in the UK when I was just working in the office. So uh, at the same time, tracking all sorts of other variables to combine with that and actually see what were potentially metabolic outcomes. Then we have more of an ongoing type of reading and that can be useful to, 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 to assess what exactly in the environment is affecting the baseline reading. So that, that, that is one, one thing. In, within increasing variability, uh, so when the number of the, 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 the score that a specific app or system or algorithm will give you, generally speaking, is associated to a higher resilience and a better health status, up to a point. Because, for example, if there are certain uh, conditions like AFib, um, sorry, um, atrial fibrillation and irregularities due to either, I don't know, we sometimes find this in ultra-endurance elite athlete or an exceptionally low heart rate. This is when, unfortunately, we may not be able to use HRV as clearly uh, as a guidance as we would in, under normal circumstances. So, obviously, the gap between these two kind of status is very, very wide. In fact, um, looking at, for example, a few months of data, we are generally speaking able to understand if someone is a recreational athlete or is actually an endurance professional athlete. Uh, this is just by looking at the data. So it, it's, it's very, very powerful tool if used correctly, but there are a few limitations that people need to be very aware of. Yeah, I think we're in, in kind of uh, some new ground with that um, 
because I know that in the ultra endurance type of sports, it's very common to have the, the tachycardia and very low heart rate. I, I actually uh, have that. My friend Bruce has that. Jonathan, do you have that yeah, going um, on? So, yeah, no, I, was gonna, I have a very low heart rate. I mean, I, I wake up with like a heart rate of 38 to 40, and then I do my breathing exercises, and it goes, I've seen it go as low as 26. So that's probably not the ideal time to take my heart rate variability. So, but yeah, yeah. Well, that's the problem is, is sometimes the, the, I've been asked, do you have a heart rate? <laughs> because yeah. it gets so low. But um, yeah, the tachycardia is, is, is very common, commonly seen. Yeah. And, and um, endurance athletes, yeah. The, uh, yeah, I was going to, I was going to say, I actually work with electrophysiologists who are specialists in, say, placing, placing pacemakers and internal defibrillators. So, and these, uh, and I see these um, sick um, heart rate uh, pathologies such as Wolf Parkinson's white, you know, SVT, which is supraventricular tachycardia. And then there's variations of that, atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, you know, and the whole gamut. And, you know, it's interesting that even the pacemaker companies are actually inserting uh, algorithms to mimic heart rate variability because they know uh, this fact, you know, of the mortality associated with, you know, a low heart rate variability. So, you know, that, that was one thing I was going to comment on. And then this next thing I was going to comment on and then Alessandro, you know, should answer is, you know, and so many high performance endurance athletes, they have low resting heart rates. So one, yeah. it's pretty hard in the morning to check those heart rates. So, you know, we need some guidelines, um, just, just some advices. But the other thing is, you know, to, to, to lead into atrial fibrillation and flutter, you know, for the masters athletes, it's quite a common phenomena, you know, and yeah. you have to ask yourself, you know, is measuring heart rate variability, um, just one of the many things that could give you a heads up if you're headed that direction as a master's athlete, you know, and in the world of triathlon, this is big, big, big deal because people are actually dying out there in the water, you know, and, or elsewhere. So I think it's an important question and I think something you, hopefully you've touched on. Yeah, I, I, absolutely, Jonathan. Yeah, uh, that's a, reflects exactly my views in the sense that, um, the heart rate variability does not tell you if that day you can train or not. It's an addendum that mix with your subjective reported data, uh, glucose level or whatever other variable the person is taking in consideration is able to advise the person to take a more informative decision. This is really, really important because so many people, ah, today my HRV is down and I can train, but they actually feel really good. Well, in that case, maybe just go ahead, but perhaps rather than having a blasting hill session in cycling or a power session, maybe just, you know, just work on something else. And I do this every single time. I try to put in as much contest as I possibly can. So for an athlete today is a master athlete or an ultra endurance elite athlete with very, very low heart rate, then even that has to be put into contest because we need to look at the, at the data of the person 
I would say I prefer to look over a period of two to three months. So we understand we have already a good baseline, we have already an understanding what happened in, in a high intensity period, in a high volume period, combining the both. So we, we, we can compare that, for example, from, uh, from, from normal period of training onto a modular training. So, and we see the reactions and how the coefficient of variation of the heartbeat actually responds. So in, in the event that the heart rate is very, very low, I tend to prefer to provoke a, an environmental challenge. So for example, supine position of taking as far as reading is concerned, I would definitely avoid that because normally in jargon we call it the parasympathetic flood. So when some of these athletes actually relax, and exactly what happened to you, Jonathan, if I may say, it's, you know, it, 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 you lie down and then you start breathing exercises. My heart rate drops of about 10 beats as well. But uh, if it goes below certain values, I tend to suggest to take the reading standing and after the person has, feels awake, if that makes sense. So we, we can have a little bit of a, we use a little bit of a postural stress very, very gentle, in order to regularize the beat. Um, this is a procedure I have personally found uh, being a little bit... There is a lovely uh, podcast from um, a researcher called Andrew Flatt, and most of my information uh, come from Marco Altini, uh, Jason Moore, Greg Elliott. They have a course on HRV called HRV Course, incidentally enough, um, and, you know, there are lots of these little information if you want to deepen your, 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 your basic knowledge on what is HIV postural uh, challenges on the reading and a little bit more of the, uh, of the more complex data towards the end as well. So one of the things that we look, if, they, if I see a value of, for example, RMSSD that is very, very high, and the person is performing at a really high level, automatically I would change the, 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 the reading position and, you know, just adapting to that specific person. So, yeah, yeah. So to kind of place this in, in I want to move this sort of like into this realm so we can throw some balls in the air and, and muse over what's out there and, and what we're all sort of collectively developing is is the other big variable um, whether the athlete is a young one but particularly like for the middle-aged athletes is whether they're fat adapted versus carbohydrate fueled and um, you know this has this has huge implications for um, you know, the cardiovascular system uh, and, and what we're seeing. And, and since I'm the one that doesn't have to, I don't have the, the, the letters behind my name. You know, what we're seeing is that, that cardio, the, 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 you know, the, the suggestion that cardio might be uh, deleterious or even or not necessary kind of goes out the window when you're flat, fat adapted. We're seeing that this moves the physiology in a better way. And, you know, I've sort of hypothesized that, it improves the arterial distensibility for blood flow and all that. And I think that that like breathing exercises when you're fat adapted would have a, you know, thinking about that when you guys were talking about that. 
it has tremendous impact on the fact that you can do your breathing exercises, get the blood flowing, the arteries, you know, opened up, and then all of a sudden back off, take your HR, your heart rate, and it's it's dropped just because of the, um, you know, changes in, in your, your system. So let's kind of toss up some balls about, about this thing, about, you know, what we're seeing with, with carb, traditional carb fueled athletes versus fat adapted ones. Uh, sure. Is, is that, uh, would you like to go Jonathan? Or no, I was just going to comment that you, you probably already showed that one right off the bat with your state of being pre-diabetic, uh, you know, yeah. Before you started this journey. <laughs> yeah, I got that one covered. Um, um, yes, I mean, the, the, okay, I, I am not attached to any specific ideas I mentioned at the very start, and I just want to make sure to reinforce that purely because uh, being a nutritionist, I have a, an influx of people searching for low carbohydrate, high fat from because it's trendy, because they saw the friend losing kilos and kilos and because of whatever. Now, doing some research, especially with my work with uh, Dr. Benjamin Lynch, uh, it, we, we, we have found that pathways are very, very different as far as um, functioning from glucose and functioning from fats. I mean, at the end of the day, it will still end up in acetylcholine I may. Yet, the level of efficiency from both mitochondria in the electron transport chain, but also in the production of free radical seems to be greatly reduced when the body is using fats and ketones as a primary source of fuel. So to me, the biggest change was, and, and, and I want to make this exceptionally clear, like me, there are many. And amongst us, we were not to lash out on cakes. We were not to, uh, you know, go mad with alcohol. We, we, we were the typical on a healthy diet and lifestyle. And I mean it. So my carbs would come from rice and sweet potatoes and or normal potatoes. So it was a kind of slightly carbier version of a paleo style, whatever that may mean. And the, the, the complication I had combining the damages and effect of the exercise I did, uh, which now I do more, but at the time, the combination of the two did not work for my metabolism and my genetic predisposition and my current environment at the time. In other words, the exercise actually exacerbated the, the dietary intake because you were just needing to take in that much more sugar to fuel your exercise. That is correct. That is correct. And th that led us to, to do some research in what were the potential advantages and why i mean to me it didn't make any difference to eat carbs or not i'm not you know it wasn't part of any movement that wanted to prove one right and the other one wrong i you know that that was beyond the point um but i definitely started to see that some of the changes and some of the recovery for example and 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 all the other collateral benefits that this will actually bring about and to me constantly being involved in measuring glucose 
and ketones and looking at metabolic efficiency, there was a very net difference to, to, to the point that I took my HIV readings uh, pre-low-carb, uh, high-fat, and then I had omitted the transition and then took, compare that to the data after I had been adapted, but the important point, after quite a few months, not, you know, a couple of weeks later, and there was a substantial difference within the baseline levels. Obviously, I've maintained the exercise routine the same, exactly the same period uh, as far as the, the, the intensity. I even counted the intensity of the training. So, and happens to be that my glucose in this period, uh, comparing the two periods, had dropped of about 20 points in uh, US terms and one whole millimolar uh, and a bit uh, in, 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 in UK terms or whatever is the um, uh, measuring units. So it's quite substantial. That's quite substantial. Now, am I totally anti-carbs? Of course not. In some instances, I will actually use carbs and suggest to use carbs, but it has to be wise. It has to be uh, kind of aimed and tailored in, in, in relation to the type of effort, in relation to the inflammatory response of someone, in relation to is the person in acute phase, is a person in a, in a chronic stage of inflammatory response. And the type of effort also, to me, is the main decisive factor. Uh, you know, measuring glucose prior training, I would like to have a little level of uh, glucose in the blood accompanied, in my specific case, to some ketones. And if it's a really high intensity type of effort, I would probably advise to take glucose at the time. Or even cycling in the, 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 the two dietary approaches in order to really, really maximize the outcome. So I can I can actually talk to a, you know, on the being in medicine for sometimes uh, I totally agree with you, Alessandro. The you take nothing for granted. You there's you know I've seen every side of every disease, um, healthy, uh, whatnot, and yeah, I, I, you get humbled I, you sometimes. Get humbled so sometimes, yeah, the so, whole idea yeah, of <laughs> telling everybody they have to be you know one diet or the other is just uh, it's, it's just baloney and. You know, you really got to take each and each person is an individual, and it, everybody can be different. And you, if you can't, you appreciate that quickly working with people. Um, the <clears throat> the one thing I wanted to bring up was with um, you know, in uh, giving you know like a the dietary advice and the you know as it relates to heart rate variability, you know, as far as like congestive heart failure, for example, you know that's a great place, you know, if you get people off just the refined carbs, you know, and, and if you, even better, if you get them on a higher fat diet, you know, they lose the salt, their hearts, you know, their heart rate variability improves because the load, the fluid load off of the, uh, off of the heart, you know, is better. And then you switch, you know, and then you throw in, of course, you know, getting, uh, you know, better meditation, better, you know, for lack of a better word, earthing or electrons in your body, you know, and, and all of these kind of things in a medical sense, 
make a difference in, in, in the patient. And I think, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of measuring that with heart rate variability. So, um, and then on the athlete side, um, yeah, definitely, if you could talk a l little bit to how the heart prefers ketones, actually, um, and you've already alluded to, you know, better uh, tracings and heart rate variability measurements, you know, with this, is that is that an evolutionary thing? Is it, you know, what what have you run across research-wise and in and in your own explanations? You know, research isn't everything, but you're obviously into this enough. You know, you might have an, you might have some kind of answer for that. Uh, <laughs> hypothesis, many answer. I'm not sure. <laughs> I sure, never, yeah. never ever felt so ignorant in my life. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, uh, I get humbled very, very quickly, very often uh, these days. Um, but in, okay, so we we started to look at various complexes within the mitochondria, and yeah, we know the fat holds more ATP and, 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 and etc. But I thought, well, th th these changes are substantial. So they're quantifiable, they're measurable, especially if someone does a low to medium intensity, high volume type of exercise. This is when the difference seems to be way, way more pronounced compared to a type of high intensity uh, training. So we, I, I, I kind of merged brains with, um, strangely enough, an engineer um, that has an absolutely beautiful analytical mind. And what I really like about him, apart from the fact that I like him as a person, but that's the different story, but the, is the fact that he was not taught any biases. He was not taught anything. He, he was completely external to the world of saturated fat is good, saturated fat is bad, carb is good, carbs are bad. He was completely oblivious. And I said, dude, uh, th this is the data. What do you make of it? And we started to do some digging and he, he came out with, with uh, an amazing uh, model looking uh, at cellular entropy and total cellular enthalpy. And we started to realize that the, 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 let's call it the efficiency of the mitochondria seems to dramatically improve when the substrate changes from sugar to fats, fats involving also ketones. Okay, so there's slightly two different pathways, but for the sake of argument, let, let's, let's keep it like that. So, and, and to the point that we, we, we got to a kind of approximate calculation on what should actually be the, the caloric deficit, because even calories have started to go a little bit out of the window. Um, and that's the reason why now I personally only work on food mass, not actually caloric value. Because if the person is, if the body is functioning on glucose, there is a slightly higher level of reacting oxygen species um, um, uh, made during the process of exchanging uh, hydrogens back into uh, ATPase and to form energy. So the mitochondria puts out energy, heat, and reactive oxygen species primarily. 
And depending upon what is the fuel, the proportion of these changes. And that is what really interested us because we thought, okay, hang on a minute. How, how is this possible that someone in a faster state that can really, uh, you know, run for what, 16 hours or something, uh, there are some races that have been, you know, the, 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 we could not explain how on earth the person can actually get constant supply and they didn't have the banana and the bars and the, the carbohydrates before they were not fueling actually during the event. And I thought this makes no sense given what I was actually taught. So when we started to do this kind of digging, we, we, we looked at some very, very powerful mechanisms that the body actually uses in switching complex one and complex two whenever that is actually more prominent from one type of substrate compared to another. People that get complex one jammed because NADA, NAD and ADH ratios are wrong. So th there are all sorts of things that I personally think, that especially for a high volume type of physical activity, um, the, 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 the type of substrate that is preferentially used um, I think if it's fat, it will actually bring some great benefits. And I'm saying preferentially use. I'm not cutting out the carbs out of the equations. And I want to be very, very specific in, 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 in this. Um, so th these, these, these findings for us were, were, were pretty huge because looking in our model of calculation uh, for the calories, people may be able to maintain at minus 20% the calorie value if they're fat adapted, meaning uh, is a gray area on that one. You know, when do you become fat adapted? Well, my, in my simple minds, I consider that when the body preferentially uses fats for energy. Yes, and that's, yeah, and that's, that's, that was something we both discussed because when we met at Low Carb USA, that was sort of exactly my finding was there was this 20 to 30% less lower caloric intake value. Um, and, and, you know, it's, you're, you're dead on about this. Um, and so, you know, this has some huge implications for um, performance. And so... Um, what do you, what do you think about this? What, what's, what's your thoughts looking down the pipeline? Well, I, I, first of all, I, I try to make a distinction. What type of effort is the person doing? So what is the time of availability of, for example, oxygen? So sometime the carbohydrates definitely will be the preferential fuel. But yet, does not mean that we cannot train the body in operating fats at much higher levels, as we know from recent study on ketogenic application and sport performance. You know, Volek and Finney has have done and the faster study was the the precursor, was the godfather of all. So, I'd say I'd say that the the, the application are, are are have a huge potential, and a correct timing. Of the substrate, uh, personally, I believe, as we've seen already from 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 some athletes, can bring some amazing advantages. 
um, and even the cycling in order to train the body. I have, I have some athletes that they try to, rather than focusing on building volume, on building their, on training, which is the purpose of the training, they start to take, for example, exogenous ketones during a normal training session. And you think, well, you're trying to train the body to do more with less. That's the purpose of training. Or just trying to do more with what you've got. By, by, uh, unless someone is after a personal best on that specific day, I, uh, the best fat adaptation I've ever achieved is when I put myself through a period and, and sequence of, of, of efforts and completely fasted, including high-intensity training. And that created some damage, of course, but then made a switch. And now... Right, right. It creates the hormesis so the body will get stronger. Precisely so. That's the English version of what I was trying to say. Uh, and also in a couple of words rather than <laughs> a thousand. Um, so the, the, I, I would train a specific body to be able to do as much as you possibly can, relying on a fuel, and then when it's actually needed, then maybe introduce the carbohydrate, or if they have, for example, a heavily catabolic session, in that case, maybe the use of actually um, simple sugars can, can, be, can be ideal. So that, that, that to me is, is also something else to consider. So is the type of training, the timing of the training, at what stage there are, is it training or is it performance? These are all things that would have to be integrated. And personally, I believe that by tweaking these and optimizing that. It... Yeah, and that's that's what we do with, with the OFM program. So, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, the, the goal is to get people as fat adapted as they possibly can for their potential, their situation, because some people have underlying conditions that's going to limit that. And then for their sport, and then, you know, the strategic carbs, um, as you're saying, with the timing, and, and it all depends on the individual, their sport, the context, the environmental uh, conditions. So there, there's all these variables that people have to sort of intuitively learn. And, you know, we can develop all the data in the world, but if you start to try to engineer your, your program, you have to, you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. And this is one of the beautiful things about sort of the way the Italian coaches coach is, is you know, people like you uh, and others, you know, it's that, that blending of science and technology with, with the art of, of, of accomplishing something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would say that the integration of these tools exactly that i mean these are tools so it, it, there is no it, it depends you choose your tools in relation to the job you don't you know you don't choose the job in relation to the tools so yeah and and the, and, and so also i think the other thing that people need to realize is, is exactly that but also that you know on that given day that giving task whether it's racing or training um you're talking about a very dynamic environment. So those tools may change over time. That is correct. That is, that, that's correct. So as my training is shifting towards, for example, a more resistant training, more, sorry, more 
catabolic tissue catabolism type of training, I may well um, implement some carbs in a different way. If it's just a, a, a normal, for example, even in a competition that I am maxed out for three minutes and then resting for five, 10, 15, totally unpredictably as well, then I would probably, I would function better fasted. And then I extended that to other people. And, and we started to get now a, a good body of data that once the person goes through that fat adaptation, even when they introduce the carbs, the body is still functioning in a much better state than what they were before. So that, that to me is a great advantage in combining all of these tools in order to achieve the best possible uh, result. So I'm going to provide a little, a few little things for the athletes out there. So, you know, our, our goal of, you know, we use the strategic carbs and I don't know, it, I, I have this sort of like radical term I use that, that in OFM, we look at, at concentrated forms of carbohydrates as, as, as a legal PED. And so using them sparingly and wisely for performance is actually can provide huge performance benefits with minimal to no downside and but what we try to do is get that athlete into the best fat adapted aerobic performance level so they can perform at a very high level aerobically burning mostly fat and um We've kind of seen this very successfully. You know, everybody says, oh, yeah, you guys are just doing endurance. And, of course, the faster study was based on ultra-endurance athletes. But um, we're going to bring Jonathan, suck Jonathan into this and talk about pro cycling. And I, I've got a gal doing jiu-jitsu that I just in, in, uh, interviewed and talk about how we bring them into this high level of, of fat ad, uh, adaptation um, Get their metabolism warmed up so that the hormonal and enzymatic signaling is is ramped up so that you can burn fat, produce ketones, produce glucose hepatically to meet that metabolic need, and then start to roll in the carbs um, to add that bang. Um, so, Jonathan, uh, you know, talk about how they do it with how we did it with Roman and um, how they do it on the pro tour, because, you know, it's kind of for us. We just kind of look the, the other way during a race. Well, it's kind of like I can just, you know, do, for example, the exercise I, I trained with a, kind of an elite cyclist today. And, you know, I and I put in a kind of a big day for me. It was about four hours and 45 minutes. And he put in. uh seven hours and 50 minutes so and he's doing this day after day he's in his uh you know his winter training but the point of saying all that is all these guys in the uh, professional cycling world do these very long endurance days and they are by default fat adapted i mean you know yeah. they can they can optimize themselves like we you know like romaine does in the off season where he watches his carbs very closely I imagine Chris, guys like Chris Room do, you know, do the same. Steve Cummings, he does the same, you know. And there's, uh, and I could name some others, but so I think at that level, you know, they're all fat adapted. But is there a step above you can take it, uh, you know, by by watching the carbs increase, you know, watching the quality of fats um, and nutrients that you take in, you know, like 
you know, organ meats, you know, the, you know, here in France, it's, we eat this, uh, uh, uh noir, it's, it's great, you know, it's just blood sausage, but, you know, there's no other source of iron and fat that, um, you know, that does, that, that actually brings you into that adapt, adapted state while maintaining your iron levels, you know, and, you know, and, and then you eat nose to tail, you know, it's just about eating natural, you know, and that's, that's why I love Europe as well. You know, there's so much more in tune with, um, you know, with natural, you know, consumption of, you know, eating, you know, meats and porks and that kind of things. And then, uh, and then also to touch on, you know, you get a better, you know, mitochondrial biogenesis from, you know, a, a higher fat state. And that's pretty conclusive. I mean, it's not just a exercise phenomenon, you know, it's also from the nutrition. And again, it's another place that can be optimized, um, you, you know, in pro cycling at least, you know, and I'm sure it, it happens, you know, in the ultra endurance guys, you know, and then the only difference with the pro cyclist, you know, it's such a uh, dynamic sport, you know, unpredictable, you know, there is no way to get through the sport without adding the carbs in, you know, around around race periods, you know, around very, very, very high intensity um, preparation, you know, for the Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia or, you know, whatever, what have you. So those are some, you know, there's very, there's some big similarities and some big differences, but I think at the base of it all, it's very, very important to remember that each of those athletes put in so much time on the bike or running that they are fat adapted to begin with. Yeah, and I think that the context of that is is like faster showed that these ultra endurance athletes were burning the low carb cohort, um, which I can shamelessly say that I coach most of those guys. Um, anyway, th that low carb cohort were burning 2.3 times the fat of the high carb fat burners, which, as you say, they were good fat burners by the conventional science. Okay, so in ultra endurance, it's 2.3 times, but say for pro cycling, if you can increase that by one time or one and a half time or 50% or 80%, you know, as you know, pro cycling is one in increments. We're talking about seconds and minutes, you know, between the guy who wins the GC at the Tour de France versus the second place guy. It can get down to, you know, less than a minute, correct? Yeah, well, being able to use your fat at 75% VO2 versus 65% VO2 is, uh, is all the difference right there. That's right. So, you know, as Faster showed, you know, if, if these people, if they're using a lot of carbs, they might be 40, 50, 60, maybe 100% more instead of 230% more. But that's going to provide uh, that huge incremental thing. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jonathan, but even though a guy like Roman Bardet is eating a lot of carbs when he's on tour, it's probably going to be less. So if he's saying consuming 15, 20, 30%, less during a ride because he's fat adapted um that that also is going to provide that performance advantage because you're not having resources diverted to trying to process and digest those those carbs and you know you're just operating as alessandro has indicated on a much more um efficient level on a on a cellular mitochondrial basis yeah well i mean one of romaine's you know uh you know, motivations for contacting us, you know, is when you wrote that, 
you know, the paper on the faster study, you know, that went viral was the fact that he said, he said to me that if I can turn my body into burning fat at, at even 70% VO2 max, he said, I can win the tour. And that's what he told me. And that's what, you know, that's what sparked his interest so much in, in, in working with us. And, you know, but, and then on the question of, you know, carb intake and during races and, and you have to understand, you know, it's, it's a hard deal. You know, you everybody's kind of fed the same thing. And unless you have the budget for a private chef, um, the world of cycling isn't so advanced, say, as, you know, like sock, you know, it's like a, you know, football, which is the correct term in America, we call it soccer. And, um, you know, so it still has a ways to go. But anyway, these guys definitely use less carbs yeah. and they have less GI Yeah, but they can distress. eat, le they're, they're going to eat le le less. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Less GI distress for yeah. sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so you know, <clears throat> go ahead, Alison. If I just may add to that, is that the, 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 there are also to the digestive issues and bypassing that, uh, which is clearly a, a great problem so one side is exactly what you guys just mentioned which is the optimization of the actual fuel in feeding energy production system the other side of the coin that to me was really kind of uh, bluntly shocking when when we started to do the research into that it was actually the the, the much lower levels of free radical production that, that is during uh, the utilizations of fat. So if you imagine someone that can reach and burn fat at higher percentages of VO2 max, then also the damage to the body on top of digestibility and etc, etc, the two combines are very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we say. And I've been trying to reframe this whole recovery discussion because there's a lot of talk about recovery and there are a lot of products for recovery. And, you know, what we observe with our OFM athletes and, and particularly when they're using the Vespa product. Um, and, and I'm not saying this just because I'm the Vespa guy, but because it's it's just what the people say to us after um, just had a 60 two-year-old guy um, attempt 100 and he said I'm just not sore two days after um, but that that it's not so much that you recover faster it's that you haven't done the damage in the first place and this speaks to what you just said about free radical production correct. That you're seeing. correct and I measured also heart rate recoveries immediately after exercise and effort I measured all sorts of other variables so for example the heart rate in relation to a response to a certain training the day before, what is going to be the HIV the following day? And, you know, point two of a point in HIV can be, it can be substantial. Maybe for the recreational athlete, maybe it's not a big deal because the next class is going to be at a fixed time. But for a recovering athlete in a, a, a elite level, that can be a substantial difference between being the top uh, of the classification or mid or down to the bottom if finishing at all super yeah yeah now another thing that we want to i do want to touch on about the use of carbs uh alessandro and jonathan is is when you get well fat adapted and and once that switch that period where you get your hormones and enzymes are now upregulated so you're 
liver can produce ketones and glucose to meet the metabolic need. It seems to us observationally that the carbs have a much bigger effect and much more powerful effect using less. Um, and then, and can you comment on that? And then I wanted to lead this into Jonathan's own personal experience about um, glucose production and, and, and the wonderful way the body and a fat adapted athlete actually can produce significant glucose. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the the <laughs> quoting what the vast majority people would describe that process is when you are fat adapted after a, you know a period of a good period of adaptation, the body is nice and stable, and then they started to timingly add the carbs. Their comments is they're like rocket fuel. Um, they That's don't. Right. They don't. They don't actually see. The, the the increase of performance in, in in just measurable power output or whatever but in actually how their energy level feels and how their brain feels which is there is so much going on i was reading an article from one of my colleagues called craig pinkering and you know it, 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 there's so much going on in 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 athletic performance and the impact of the psych of the psyche and the psychology in in sometime the difference between an elite athlete and a non or an, another elite athlete but one that wins and one that doesn't is not so much on the physiology that can be very similar but also how they perceive psychoemotionally the effort so who can actually push it to that level and if the areas of the brain that they they function only on glucose are actually fed timingly uh, in moments where there would be generally speaking a, a, a drop within you know neurotransmitters and food and substrates and etc then that could really make a difference so we are talking on the physiology but also having an effect not just in the physiology so it can go much much further this is an area that it, we're just scratching the surface so i really cannot make any specific comment because i personally haven't seen any research on the psychoemotional effects of a low carbohydrate and timing of carbohydrates um, yet given the data that we gather now from athletes and recreational athletes and even from personal experience it it, it is substantial it is substantial and how someone feels can really make a difference in their performance effort at that moment in time. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan, comment on, on some of your experience um, with your fat adaptation, you know, because you went from, you know, being a, a conventionally fueled cat one cyclist to a keto one, and then you've come to the OFM and, and this whole uh, gluconeogenesis in a fat adapted athlete. Because I remember that time you called me one night and just were shocked that your blood sugar from a fasted ride had just gotten to the level it had. Yeah, no, um, yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing I would say, just uh, direct to Alessandro's comment, and if I had to redo medical school, uh, you know, the 15 years of school that I went through, there's zero question in my mind that I would do it fat adapted. I would learn to fast. Um, and I'm, I have no <laughs> doubt in my mind it would go way better. Anyway, that's out You'd of the way. You'd be using some Vespa for your exams uh, Vespa too. Vespa <laughs> would have been great. Yep. The, especially before tests. It's, uh, oh, it's 7,000 tests. You, you have no idea. <laughs> anyway, so 
my my experience yeah is I was um, a conventionally fueled athlete, um, you know, made it to the cat one level in cycling, you know, doing all that. And, you know, it works. I, I did fine. You know, I got through it. And then, um, you know, I had a long story short, a head injury and I decided, you know, to heal, you know, I wanted to heal my brain with ketones instead of carbs. And, you know, you can go read the literature. It's, uh, it's pretty clear your brain heals better on ketones. Um, so that being said, you know, I, um, you know, I just found that there's a period of adaptation, uh, you know, about, mm, for me, it was eight to 10 months, really, before I really felt like myself again. Uh, so it, it, it takes a long time, you know, and a pro tour guy, you know, it probably takes uh, three months, you know, but you got to be patient about it. So for me, it, it took a, you know, close to a year. And once I realized that I had to be patient with it, it all just kind of came together. And then, um, you know, and then to comment on the increased glucose um, spikes that I was seeing with acute exercise, yeah, during some of my very hard training moments, I would spike my sugars into the 150s and just, you know, you, you think that's totally opposite because you're suppressing insulin, you know, you're doing this or, you know, is it the cortisol? Is it you know, is it, is it the fat being actually made into the sugar, you know? And if you have any questions on that, just go have a read at Chris Masterjohn's, um, you know, blog site where he explains very clearly how uh, fat can lead to the genesis of sugar, you know? And, and these are things you will not find in the biochemistry textbooks. So, you know, anyway, and I'm not the only one, and, and Peter will... Yeah, and it's, how many people it's he's quite seen surprising. It it, yeah, yeah, and it's quite surprising just how much glucose the body hepatically will produce, and and that was corroborated with the glycogen replenishment uh, data from Faster, where the low carb uh, athletes, after running a three hour treadmill test at sixty five percent of VO two max, taking in insignificant amounts of carbohydrates, were actually replenishing. Mm -hmm their glycogen at or above the rates of the uh, high-carb athletes who were be being given exogenous carbohydrates. Yeah, well, we're, we know it, it happens. So anyway, Alessandro, talk about, tell us about a little bit about the, the relationships of, of cortisol and HRV sort of in a layman's terms, and then we'll, we'll, we'll sort of wrap this up and, and get people out there scratching their heads too. Sure. Um, it, it's one of the one of these things that I have been uh, researching recently, and uh, one of the so I like to experience things uh, and then try to put people through you know the same experience to see if the data is the same and so on. So I took um, I took a, a test called Dutch test, which is a dried urine. Uh, test analysis using spectrometry, so a lot more stability within uh, the metabolites that they're measuring. Uh, and I, I wanted to, to, I got five of them and, and tried to quantify the changes, not only in HIV, but also in blood sugar level, ketones, and so on. So cortisol to me is, 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 is very, very important to, to have an idea where 
where it is at and reactions from the body and secretion, and especially the ratio between the cortisone and end endogenous cortisone and cortisol. And when, when, when we look at a specific acute phases, so the, the cortisol and cortisone, the body is ruled by, by rhythms. And any potential changes within these rhythms and any potential anomalies can actually hinder performance quite substantially. I'm pretty sure that we are all very familiar with um, <laughs> loss of circadian rhythms and performance and in relation to sleep, in relation to how the person feels when the person trains, but also the levels of these uh, hormones. And for example, I did uh, a, 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 an intense, so I did my normal test, uh, which was baseline, and look at my values, yeah, optimal values, couple of things were slightly, slightly on the low side, some other slightly on the high side, but my normal, my normal, 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 normal diet, normal training, normal work. And, and then I did one on a really, at the end of a high intense period where we saw massive spikes in cortisol and cortisone, dropping testosterone, dropping melatonin, so really quantifiable. And this was not something that was exceptionally um, hard period of training. Then I did one with work and also very, very different results. So generally speaking, cortisol in an acute phase will affect heart rate variability in, in an inverse correlation. So the higher is the cortisol, the higher is sympathetic activation. Generally speaking, not so much at the time in which cortisol is high, but when cortisol stops, then we also have irregularities within blood glucose regulations. Um, on the other hand, when the cycle of cortisol is, let's say, optimal, then this is also reflected in heart rate variability. And I think it can provide a great insight, because obviously measuring cortisol, unless one, one, someone has a medical team that is just specifically there for them, then it, it could be a little hard to quantify. So at times, even just knowing the patterns, knowing the baseline, knowing the volume of the training, so knowing this simple recordable variable, we can make, um, uh, let's say, quantified and aimed assumption or what can potentially be the best test, and if it would involve testing for cortisol. So uh, the, the, the correlation is pretty, it's pretty good. And after all of this research, I also noticed that we can use uh, specific data to look at critical point also to understand if perhaps the best fuel for that person at that moment in time would be glucose. So uh, we can also make potential refinements to the diet starting from such a simple measurement uh, like heart rate variability. So this is how I have um, implemented in research and then extended uh, to different people um, the implementation of HIV and cortisol. Wow. Yeah, no. And I think that, that uh, the take home there is, you know, like we look at the individual in OFM and we look at their whole environment and take a very holistic approach because, 
you know, as you say, you know, people, when they're athletes, they tend to look at the, what they're doing in just their athletics and not look at what else is going on in their lives, their work stress, their relationship stress. Um, circadian rhythm is a no-brainer. Everybody knows that one. <laughs> it affects them. Um, well, if... Don't it, you think? Yeah, just to give you some context, the, I, I, I basically refuse to see an athlete um, can't really disclose too much but the, the main reason was because the lifestyle of this person was totally unsuitable for the type of mole and volume and intensity of the program that the person had to undergo for a specific race early next year and I'm a nutritionist, researcher, but I, I, I'm not a counsellor. I studied counselling and <laughs> psychotherapy, but that, that what gave me an insight to understand that the, the psycho-emotional stress for that person at that moment in time, given which I have worked out through looking at the HRV data, because I said, you know, I was looking at the data, and this happens continuously. I said, look, in the way how your body reacts to the type of training it doesn't, there is something else impacting your health. There is an external value, an external load, something that does not allow your body to react efficiently. And that, I tend to use that, uh, for that, is something called coefficient of variation. So, if given a certain training, the, person, the person's heart rate variability jumps around a lot, then automatically we can perhaps investigate other things not necessarily related to the specific training period or the type of training that they're doing that can affect heart rate variability. Remember that HIV, it, it measures the sympathetic activation and inflammatory response, and it's really hard to distinguish between the both. Um, I, I've made multiple attempts and miserably fail in that, <laughs> uh, to the point that the self-reported data seems to be more precise than just looking. However, in both cases, we have a sympathetic activation or lack of parasympathetic activation and an inflammatory response. So sometimes just looking at the coefficient of variation, we can gain a great insight in relation to the training. So if someone says to me, I just radically change the training program, then we can account for some an, an increase in coefficient of variation because the body is not quite prepared for that type of training. So it will generate more stress in order to adapt to it or just has generated more stress for the actual event. However, if we know that the athlete is undergoing a regular training session, we also know how their body should actually respond. And if it responds substantially differently with the HRV daily and the day-to-day -day variation jumping around consistently and substantially, then we know that there may be other causes that, and generally speaking, we found that the cortisol is either exceptionally elevated or flat, and testosterone virtually in all cases is down. This will affect melatonin. This would affect... So there is a consequential cascade of things that we can gain by a more advanced analysis of heart rate variability. 
Wow, wow, this is superb. And, and, and so heart rate variability is just one more great tool we have, but it's, it's part of that whole um, biological system. So we got to look at all the numbers and kind of, you know, read the tea leaves, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, to me, my interest is specifically to, is a quick, non-intrusive, insight that can lead the person for further investigation if he's needed or if he's warned. So um, I, I help and support, let's say, uh, people from all over the world where either due to time zones or, 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 or practicality, we cannot meet in a clinic and say, you know, how are you? How are you doing? How's the training? So this is an insight that I have in someone else. I use a coach app of a specific app where I can access all of this data. I can look at normalized HIV. I can look at the, the coefficient of variation. I can look at the intensity of the training and I can look at the self-subjective data. And it takes me 30 to 60 seconds to just look at glance. And, you know, if nothing is said, then everything looks normal. Fine. But if I then start to see premonition signs or premonition trends, then I will inform the athlete. I will be on it like a hawk. Because this is the difference between perhaps getting, picking up an injury. So, for example, so many athletes, they feel great. They want to push it through. They want to keep going, keep doing. HRV is down. They pick up an injury. And what's really interesting is if they have even a pre-existing uh, weakest link, it doesn't necessarily have to appear in that specific condition, in that specific part of the body. Generally speaking, when someone is kind of going towards an under-recovery or overtraining, HRV is down, but mentally they feel they could push through, generally speaking, something not nice happens. And in my case, is picking up injury. In this person's case, was constantly raised glucose level to a point that, you know, I, as a nutritionist, I was starting to question the diet and how truthful the actually <laughs> diet <laughs> report actually was. Um, and, and so there are all sorts of things that we can use from heart rate variability not to diagnose but to give us a better insight, perhaps to do further investigation. So, for example, in this person, I said, look, we need to understand what happens with your inflammatory response. We need to understand better your hormones. If you are in exceptionally high cortisone or in exceptionally high cortisol, or, and we ended up in that specific case finding they were completely flat and hardly any testosterone. And I said to the person, feed carbs. You're not in a state that you should train and carry on that fat adaptation, just go back to a normal diet, revisit your lifestyle, revisit your life load, and then we can carry on. Which is the reason why I ended up actually said, well, if you're not prepared to, to make these changes, I don't want to set up yourself for something a little bit more, um, <laughs> you know, a little bit like a, a major injury or a complete exhaustion. I'm not sure if this. Yeah, yeah, and and people do dig their hole, dig themselves a, a, a can dig themselves a hole trying to do really strict fat adaptation, and then 
train and race this way and and put quite a bit of stress on their adrenals like you said their cortisone cortisol and testosterone were like tanked so um uh, um I don't know where this is all going to lead, but it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? Well, most of the times, I I I try to 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 assess the person's lifestyle and have as much insight as I possibly can. Obviously, there are budgets. Obviously, you know, yeah, it would be nice to spend three, four thousand pounds or dollars or whatever. And, and have a complete panel, which elite athlete may be having access to. However, just by taking a simple measurement, people can uh, perhaps focus more on certain things rather than others, or maybe try to find critical points rather than having to test two times a week. <laughs> so that, that, I think, is the great advantage of perhaps using this as a, as a proxy, as a... As a uh, is a kind of cannery in the mind to, to, to understand a little bit better of what is the physiology of the body. And I have noticed that when people made the transition to go fully fat adapted and then starting to timing the carbs in, then they maintain that slightly better level of heart rate variability, meaning how the body actually responds to stress response, to training, to lifeless. So it seemingly increases as their resilience. Yeah, that's you're talking about the OFM program. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, Alessandro, this was just a, an incredible insight. And, and I, I, I look forward to continue to, to correspond and work with you. And hopefully all our collaboration will bring some great breakthroughs. Dr. Edwards, uh, any commentary or any other questions you have for Alessandro? No, I think it's a good, uh, you know, good time to wrap it up and maybe we'll, <clears throat> we'll consider another podcast. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of so many other disease states and HRV, you know, hypothyroidism and, you know, whatnot. I mean, I mean, you could just keep, keep yeah, going Yeah, no, I know. We could so, go on and on. This, the, It's I leading to I, more rabbit holes. So, Alessandro, if you're open to that, we should be um, scheduling another month or so, another podcast with you. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be, it'll be my pleasure. Um, th th that's exactly what I'm mining the data right now, um, looking at, you know, HIV, cortisol correlations and blood glucose regulations and you know, self-reported data. So, uh, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, let's do that because I actually am scheduling some other people on to do to, to discuss some other things, hormones, particularly with female athletes. But we're also going to do uh, stuff with male athletes. And I think when we're we're talking about cortisol, cortisone, testosterone, we're, we're you know, as I say, OFM is a very holistic approach, and and science tries to control the variables. So what are our mission here is to try to take all those different pieces and bring them together into a way that helps the listener, the athlete to understand, you know, how to get themselves in that, that highly fat adapted um, metabolic state so they can not only be super healthy, but perform super well, but, but also um, be able to tolerate the carbohydrates and get the benefits from them. 
Sure, absolutely. Uh, and the other thing that you may find, uh, guys, interesting is my work with my colleague, as mentioned earlier, Waco Jaros, the, 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 in relation to the, uh, the caloric versus mass of food and the, the adaptation that we need to take and the approach that we need to take if someone is fat adapted because they can easily end up relatively hypercaloric if they follow the same guidelines and going from a, a body functioning on carbohydrates versus a body that is fat adapted. Now, that's right. And we, that's why the second tier of the OFM pyramid focuses on nutrition, not calories, because if you get the nutrition right, it's easy to be in what today's world would be considered hypocaloric, but it's, it's actually isocaloric for a fat That's correct. Athlete. Yeah, so super. Let's call this a wrap. Jonathan, thanks very much again for taking some time out from your little reprieve in France. Merci. À bientôt. And, yep. And we'll be back with uh, more here. Thank you again, Alessandro, for your time. Very, very and, welcome. Um, and thanks for our listeners for bearing with us. I hope uh, that they all get a lot out of this. And, and, you know, as our goal with Food for Thought is, we're going to send you away thinking about a lot of things as we are. Thanks. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, sponsored by Vespa.